Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series with James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and here the guys will be in chapter 11, which is on man, the agent of transformation. Please do keep in mind our upcoming intensive course with Peter Lighthart discussing Paul and Pauline theology. That'll be March 13 through 17. And a link for more information and registration can be found in the show notes. Also on the calendar, keep in mind our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference. That'll be this summer, July 17th and 18th. And the topic this year is love. Speakers will include James Wood, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, Mark Bryans, Peter Lighthart, and many others. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Through New Eyes, Chapter 11. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it's easy for you all to listen to. We wish you a happy epiphany. Uh, We are in the midst of the Epiphany season, the season that follows the Christmas season in the traditional church calendar. And uh, it's the season that stretches from the end of the Christmas season to the beginning of Lent. Epiphany means manifestation or revelation, and Epiphany uh, commemorates the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles, the initial revelation to the Magi. So it's a continuation of the Christmas story in that respect. But Epiphany also focuses on a number of episodes in the life of Jesus, his baptism, the transfiguration, where the glory of Jesus is manifested to the world. So we we pray that that you're enjoying the Epiphany season and the Lord is indeed showing his light and shining his light on you. Uh, We're in the midst of a podcast series on James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. Uh, This has been a crucial book for a number of us. Uh, It's kind of a touchstone of our biblical studies, our preaching, our teaching, our theology. And uh, so we've been working chapter by chapter through through this book. And we're, the book is organized uh, in several large sections. He begins with a discussion of symbolism and lays out kind of a biblical theology of symbolism, making the point that the world is created as a set of symbols of God and that the Bible gives us it's kind of the answer book or the code breaker, the key to understand how the, how the world manifest God and how the different symbols of the world fit together and reveal each other. And he goes into um, a discussion of what he calls the furnishings or furniture of the world, the different things that God creates at the beginning, and how those manifest God and his purposes for the world. Uh, We talked uh, in the last couple episodes, we've talked about the right of transformation, the pattern of actions that God goes through as he creates the world. It's a pattern of action that's replicated in God's action in human history, as we'll see in coming uh, weeks. And it's also a pattern that's manifest in human action. We all run through something like that same pattern. It's the pattern of the Eucharistic rite. Jesus takes hold of the bread. He breaks it. He gives it a new name. He distributes it. His disciples receive it, enjoy it, uh, and delight in it. And that's that is that's the sequence of creation that's now being replicated. And, and uh, we're kind of put back in, in rhythm with that sequence when we come to the Lord's table. And particularly, uh, when we come to the Lord's table, we're trained in thanksgiving because Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks before he breaks it. So we're trained in that human act of thanksgiving reception of the world that God has given us. Uh, we're in chapter 11 this week, uh, which is called Man, the Agent of Transformation. 
Uh, and this focuses on the traditional idea uh, that, uh, usually a Christological idea, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. This is a patristic notion. I think it uh, uh, goes back at least to Chrysostom. Maybe there are other church fathers that use this framework to talk about Christ. Calvin uses it to talk about the the uh, the work of Christ, the three offices of Christ. Uh, and uh, Jim is using that same set of categories, but instead of applying it specifically to Christ, he's not denying that, but instead of applying it specifically and mainly to Christ, he's using it as a paradigm to think about human life in general. So he's talking about Adam as priest and king growing up into a prophet. That's the, that's the pattern that uh, Jim is laying out in this chapter. And a couple of things, that, even though he's using traditional terminology and a traditional framework, he does a couple of things to modify that. Uh, one is that he's offering uh, more uh, tightly biblical definitions of each of the terms. We'll talk about that in a bit. The terms are priest, king, and prophet are, uh, are defined in West, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and other places by theologians, by catechisms, and so on. But uh, Jim is uh, trying to get to the fundamental biblical understanding of each of these offices. The other thing that he does more subtly, and he doesn't develop this quite as much in through Noise as he does in his later work, but he um, he modifies the the order, the sequence of these offices, if you will. Traditionally, it's prophet, priest, and king, and Jim is modifying the order. He thinks that the uh, Adam begins and begins as a priest, begins with priestly ministry grows up into kingship and then grows up into prophetic stature, prophetic maturity. So that's a that sequence is not as clear in Through New Eyes. Uh, if you look at From Bread to Wine, one of Jim's more recent publications, uh, he lays that out. That's the basic structure of the whole book is looking at how that priest, king, prophet sequence uh, works throughout the Bible and then also works in, in human life. One other thing I want to say um, by way of introductions is I was, I was particularly struck reading through this again by what Jim says about the creation of Eve. I've been thinking about that uh, as I teach a Sunday school class through the early chapters of Genesis. And uh, Jim points out that uh, the creation of Eve is another example of that, the sequence, the creation sequence that he's already described, the, the, the rite of transformation, the sequence of transformation that he's described in the previous chapter. So God takes hold of Adam. He tears Adam into two and he's got a rib on one side and the rest of Adam on the other side. Uh, he, he modifies, it gives a new name. Uh, the, the rib is built up into a woman. Uh, and then uh, the woman is presented to Adam. He, uh, he uh, uh, names her, he delights in her, and the two become one flesh. But that whole sequence is, is, a, is an act of new creation. Adam, humanity, you could say, enters into a new stage of glory by the creation of Eve. And, and it's significant that humanity enters into that new stage of glory through the same sequence of actions that God has used throughout the throughout the creation week. Just to perhaps kick off stating the, the obvious, I mean, um, this chapter is entitled Man, the Agent of Transformation. And it's obviously grounded in a lot of um, Genesis, the opening chapters of, of the Bible. And um, it's very easy to think of Genesis as describing a, a perfect um, and, well, it is perfect in some sense, but a complete state. And um, one thing that kind of the chapter makes clear and that really is predicated on is, is that Eden and kind of the initial state is is a starting point um, rather than a finishing point. There are things to 
guard there there is an, an outside realm to subdue and to take dominion over and so on and i think it's quite easy to miss that reading genesis so it, it seems a helpful thing and just to, to fill that out a little bit one of the things that jim points out is the, the way that uh, god's actions in creation are imitated uh, replicated in some fashion in a creaturely fashion by adam so a god in the first three days of the creation week sets up certain structures and then names different parts of the world. He names the, he names the firm in heaven, the gathering of the waters. He names seas, the, the dry land that emerges, he names as land. And then in the next chapter, we find Adam doing the same thing. God creates in the first three days by separating things. And then separating becomes part of the activity and action of human beings in the world. That reinforces Jim's point that he made, made earlier that the creation week is set up to set a pattern for human action and we actually see that in the opening chapters that the, the things that the things that Adam is doing, he's called to do, uh, are uh, to use Cornelius Van Til's language. Uh, God is creatively constructive; man is recreatively reconstructive. But he's he's doing uh, divine-like actions and building the world, as you say, James, building the world and filling it out and completing it. And to piggyback on that, interestingly, I point this out when I'm I'm going through Genesis, actually one, two, and three now in class and church, as the Lord works with creation in Genesis 1, at the end of each day, there's an evaluation, you know, this is good. But if you think about that process, it's a series of comparative judgments, because what's good is not best. So it becomes better the next day, and then even better the next day. And when the Lord finishes on the sixth day and says, it's all very good, it's still not finished. It's not complete. And so, as James noted, man is set in the world to finish things. He completes things. So, he, tr- he continues the transformation. And um, and then, uh, as Peter just noted, the, uh, the making of the woman is so that he can have someone to help him do that. And even her, as Peter said, even her fashioning is another example of how the creation is to be fashioned and glorified from Adam to a glorified human woman. Uh, And so from what Adam is given in the creation to him working with it, a process of glorification from glory to glory. There's, for me, in in this, there's there's a whole pile of epiphanies, whole pile of aha moments for me uh, reading through this uh, and remembering that I had these aha moments. I was reading through this again this week and thinking about all of this. And one of them was what we're talking about here, this uh, Adam's call, his vocation to transform, to glorify, to, to work with the world in order to bring out its fullness, to bring out, you know, inherent beauty, inherent usefulness um, of creation. And that's true dominion. I think before this, before I read Jim, before I worked with Jim and listened to him talk about this, I had I thought about dominion as being domination or uh, just wrestling with the world in order to tame it. There is, of course, that aspect to it, but the point is not just to tame it and to subject it to to man's will. Uh, that could that could be a kind of violence. And, and is often the way, of course, that dominion is 
portrayed or mischaracterized by many as a kind of violence, kind of uh, not really caring for the world. But when you read about Jim's account here, even just the first like four pages, uh, that kingship, that rule, that uh, dominion is is about glorification. It's about beautification. It's about it's about bringing out what it, the potential that's that's in the world. It's not about uh, just about you know domination. And so, so service, kingship as service, is extremely important. I think in Jim's way of outlining prophet, priest, and king. And I'm sure we'll get to that eventually too, when we talk about Jesus and his, what his kingly service, how his kingly service was, was manifest in his life and especially in his death. That theme of transformation and glorification, I think is perhaps one of the most potent aspects of Jordan's theology. It's one of the areas in which he's really filling what I feel to be a deficit within most other forms of theology. And also, when you get back to the very beginning of Genesis, going through chapter one, you can see there is a sort of development in the way that the Lord engages with the creation. There's the emphasis upon the transcendent voice, the act of bringing forth light on the first day. And then as you go through, you can see this gradual movement to greater forms of engagement with an empowerment of the creation. So on day two, there's a sort of formation. The Lord makes a firmament. And then on day three, at the second act of creation, um, let the earth bring forth. The earth is empowered to do something as part of the process. Then on day four, um, power authority is delegated to the heavenly lights. And then on day five, the fish are called to be fruitful and to multiply, filling the seas. And so there's a gradual progress in the degree to which the created bodies are, first of all, engaged with by the Lord, and then also conscripted to become part of the creative process. And then, of course, on day six, we have man being called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and to exercise dominion over all of its creatures. There is this progression beyond, and it's one of the ways in which humankind is in the Lord's likeness. We are called to follow his pattern of weekly work, for instance. And we see that pattern recapitulated in chapter two, notably after the creation of the man. So Adam witnesses, presumably, the creation of Eden. He sees the processes by which it it is put together so that he might in turn um, subdue the earth in its likeness. So first of all, he sees this is how this model is created. It's a model of the wider creation. And then from that, he's given a place within the garden where he has to manage that particular creation. And then he goes out into the world. Subsequently, the expectation is, and then he subdues the rest of the creation in a manner like the garden that the Lord himself created. And so that sense of progression, of glorification, of maturation I think unlocks a lot of different aspects of um, just the biblical narrative that get missed in accounts that focus upon original perfection, fall from that, and then restoration and glorification. As James pointed out, there's something in this theme of the creation not being perfect, but being good, that helps us 
work through a lot of the rest of the biblical narrative and for things to fall into place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and uh, all of you have said this, but uh, it's one of the glory is one of Jim's major themes and glorification is one of his major themes. Uh, the way, way he comes to this in Genesis 2 is by looking at the instructions that the Lord gives to Adam. He's told to be uh, to serve and to guard the garden in traditional language to dress and to keep. But Jim is trying to pull out translations that uh, link up with other things that uh, come later in the Pentateuch. So, uh, and, and in, at least in Through New Eyes, he's linking up serve with royal, with the royal task, uh, which he describes as you all have been describing as both a scientific and an aesthetic task. It's to know the world. Uh, there's a sense in which you're exploiting it, but you're exploiting it for the sake of improving and glorifying it, not for the sake of, not for the, uh, not for exploitation's sake, as it were, domination's sake. So the, uh, that's the that's the service part of it, and then the guarding part is a priestly task and is particularly focused in uh, in the garden. Adam is has the garden to guard. I think in 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 later work, I think Jim one of the things he's doing is saying that the the priestly task is associated with the, the those two tasks are associated with the two trees. But I think in, in later work, what he sees is that serve and guard are actually two terms that are associated, both associated with priesthood in the Old Testament. You find that in, uh, and particularly with Levitical service, the Levites are the ones who serve and guard. Uh, there are some places where the priests are described as having that task, but primarily that's language that's uh, used for Levites who are assistants to the priests. And uh, so in, in later work, Jim takes the task in the garden as a priestly task, and then eventually Adam would have been given access to the tree of knowledge, which would have elevated him to royal status. And then prophetic status is uh, another stage of maturity past that. Here, he's talking about the tree of life, I think associated kind of with both royal and priestly, and then prophetic associated with the tree of tree of knowledge. But in any case, the, the root of that distinction of priestly and royal in Adam's original state comes from that terminology in Genesis 2, that uh, Adam is, is set in the garden in order to dress and keep it or in order to serve and guard it. I did have a sense reading through this chapter that these are some of the most generative thoughts in Jordan's work, and they're also ones that have undergone a lot of de subsequent development. So, for instance, the definition of priest that is given here is far more developed subsequently, sub subsequently, not least through your work, Peter. And there's a sharpening of the sense of the progression from priest to king to prophet, which becomes a paradigm for thinking about um, the biblical narrative more generally, where we have a priestly body of material in the Pentateuch particularly, then we have this movement into a kingly body, which is associated with the wisdom literature, with the story of the rise of the kingdom in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then into Kings and Chronicles, and then um, this prophetic body of literature, which is... Um, comprehends most of the rest of the Old Testament. And then we also have beyond that the ways that these things provide a paradigm for, and there's a progression beyond them in certain respects in the incarnation, um, a way for understanding, for instance, the order of the Gospels, where th there is a priestly um, law emphasis, particularly within the Gospel of Matthew, in Mark, Jesus functions much more as a king, and in Luke, Jesus is a peripatetic prophet moving from place to place. He's um, cast after the image of 
Ezekiel or um, Elisha or Jeremiah. And then in the Gospel of John, there's far more of uh, an accent upon Jesus as the God-man who is the one who takes this progression even further. And so there's a sort of anthropological theme running through even the Gospels that this sort of paradigm, I think, opens up. And I've found that to be an incredibly fruitful paradigm for thinking about all sorts of things. For instance, the way in which we develop as human beings is from this very initial stage, being told what to do, do this, don't do that, to a stage of wisdom where we've internalized some of those rules and we can face a new situation and innovate. We can have this degree of experimental um, engagement with a reality that is novel and there is um, improvisation and other things like that to this movement where there is to the stage where we're a lot more creative and there is also along with that I think a relationship with God's word so first of all this emphasis upon the word external to us commanding us to a word that's been internalized through meditation and opens our eyes gives us wisdom and insight and also conscripts our emotions you can think about the psalms here and then to a movement even beyond that, where the word is that which authorizes and empowers us to act in its authority, as we see in Jeremiah chapter 1, to pull up kingdoms and to plant kingdoms, to build and to destroy. There is this greater authorization. And as we move into the New Testament, we see themes of incarnation, that we are epistles of Christ in Second Corinthians 3 and 4, this idea of us embodying the word. And the word acting in and through us in a way that is far more pronounced. And it gives an anthropological um, thrust to the doctrine of revelation that I think you seldom encounter outside of Jordan's work. I was just going to say, it's interesting you say that that progression, uh, what did you say now, priestly to kingly to prophetic, you found to be hugely fruitful. and. Um, I'm, I'm not at all denying that or, or, or anything, but I must say from someone who uh, is is fairly new to this book and much less familiar with other things that Jim has, has written than you guys are, this struck me as kind of less immediately obvious. You know, um, that's not to say that it's kind of less valid or, or, or anything, but I think that's probably the experience of some other people. Um I recall that uh, me and um, you, Alistair, and I think Peter as well, took part in a um, conversation on typology that was on Theopolis. And one of the guys contributing to that, he singled out this example, particularly of priest to king to prophet, and, and said, this is just nonsense. you know. And um, I think at the time, P Peter said, I'm not sure how to take this kind of evaluation. It's It's nonsense. Does it mean kind of... I've thought about it carefully and discounted it, or does it mean it's just immediately strikes me as as non or whatever? But it's just, yeah, it, it's interesting that I think it it's probably one of those ones that grows on you um, more than one of those initial kind of oh yeah, I, I see that. That was definitely my experience. It was a matter of sitting with the ideas for a while and just finding out. Again and again, I was returning to them and finding that it helped to explain things that I was finding within the text. 
that the ideas proved their worth over time. It wasn't something that I initially um, just swallowed whole. And that's the best way, I think, to work with much of Jim's thought, to just ruminate on it, ruminate on it and allow it to prove itself. And over time, you'll find it does prove itself. Yeah, I totally agree, especially if you're steeped in, say, uh, reform tradition, reform scholasticism, with regard to the definitions of these uh, these vocations, priest, prophet, king. Um, yeah, I remember also at first kind of being a little shocked. It's like, well, what, what's going on here? Now, uh, I don't believe that the way in which reformed uh, scholastics or confessions or catechisms have defined prophet, priest, and case is wrong. I don't. I think there's there's value there. I think Jim just modifies it and clarifies some things. Then um, and, and back to what I think Alistair was saying earlier, just about the sequence. There's also not just a sequence, but there's kind of a priority given to to the priestly work. So Jim makes this again. He doesn't develop this in this book as much as he does later on. Uh, I think the other other work where he goes through. Uh, creation and and um, the uh, kind of in a systematic way as trees and thorns. That's another Theopolis book, I believe. But the sequence, of course, in Genesis two, in some sense, he starts with a kingly task of naming the animals—a scientific enterprise, if you will. But the point of it is for him to learn that he needs he needs help. He needs a society. He needs uh, uh, there needs to be uh, this is a social kind of. Uh, of project here. So he, he gets a woman. Of course, that happens according to Jim's accounting. All on the sixth day, Adam then goes to sleep at night and has his wedding night, if you will, on the evening of the sixth day and wakes up on the seventh day, which is the day that God had made holy, set it apart for rest, but making it holy also implies that it has a function, another function that is coming into God's presence and and what we would call worship. And so Adam gets up and goes to the trees and presumably going to the trees to meet with God. God eventually comes to him, but there he is going to be tested with regard to his priestly task, which Jim highlights here in this book as guarding. And he's got his wife who he needs to guard and the serpent comes in. And so it's this, this task of guarding and worship in the garden, which is the way he begins his life. And that, that is going to be then instrumental. It's going to be instrumental in, in forming him and shaping him as to how he goes about his dominion task, his royal task. And that I think is also extremely fruitful and helpful for just Christians today. I mean, we go to church and we we worship, we enter God's presence, we eat and drink with him, we hear his word, we give thanks to him, we eat from the tree of life, uh, if you will, which is Jesus. And then we also gain wisdom, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, so that we can go out and transform the world, glorify the world. Uh, take dominion over the world. So it's a recurring sequence in our life. It's a relationship between priestly and kingly and prophetic. I'll come later. That's, but that's also an important dimension 
uh, of this, I think in, in Jim's work as well, is the priority, if you will, the foundational kind of priority of, of the priestly service that we do on the Lord's Day for the rest of the week. If I could go back to James's observation, I think you're right, James. That was uh, James Hamilton, if I recall, was the one who dismissed this paradigm as uh, as absurd. And he's he's a knowledgeable reader of the Bible. He's, we have we've had him down for a course at Theopolis. He reads the Bible typologically, but this just made no intuitive sense to him. But I think there's several things that I think uh, there's a certain kind of obviousness to it if you step back and think of just think about the sequence of covenants in the Old Testament. I mean, if you go through the Pentateuch. You come to the end of Deuteronomy and you ask the question, or you, uh, at Deuteronomy, ask the question, what is the main focus of this uh, of these sequence of books? Who is the character who is most prominent? Obviously, it's Moses. But what institution is most prominent here? It's clearly the tabernacle. Uh, and the tabernacle is headed by the high priest. The Mosaic order is clearly a priestly-centered order. Uh, when you get to the Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Obviously, you now have a monarch, so you're, you're moving into a, a royal phase of Israel's, de- uh, Israel's development. Uh, you still have priests. There's still a temple there. Uh, Solomon builds a temple. The king, king is the one who builds the temple, and then the priests are the ones who manage and guard it. But you clearly have that sequence. And then you have prophets that show up during the time of the monarchy. You have G- Abraham called a prophet way back in Genesis. But you don't have the kind of outburst of prophetic ministry and prophetic literature uh, in the Mosaic era or the Davidic era that you have uh, in the latter part of the king uh, monarchy and into the exile and beyond the exile. So I think if you just, there's, in, at least at that broad brush level, there's a there's a fairly obvious sequence going on there. Uh, and then the, the other thing I would say to, to would, uh, add to the plausibility is within Genesis, the identification of Adam as priest is dependent on the, the instructions that he's given. That's part of it, as I mentioned. And especially the servant guard, that language is going to be used later on, specifically of Levitical or priestly service. And then you have the larger issue of the the garden itself. What is the garden? What kind of environment is the garden? And again, if you interpret the garden in the light of later stages of Revelation, then you can see all these connections. And a lot of commentators see this now, uh, all these connections between the Garden of Eden and the later sanctuaries of Israel. So I think if you pull, put a bunch of these pieces together, it it may not be intuitively obvious, but when you when you look at, uh, as I said, a broad brush or look at the the context of the, the garden, then it it does gain some plausibility. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. Uh, and um, an anecdote which might help here is is some years ago, and I've used this. I've got this chart that we use for a Theopolis Fellows class, which is fairly detailed and kind of looks like an old dispensational chart of of the history and and flow of of um, of uh, Israel's history. Anyway, if I present that to someone and they look at it and they think, well, this is crazy, this is nuts. But well, the antidote is is I taught I was asked to teach on wisdom literature to our presbytery. So we have um, our presbytery uh, together at a retreat, which includes you know, pastors, ministers, but also seminary professors from Covenant. And so the way I presented this, the, the, the place of wisdom literature within the flow of, of Israel's history was exactly as Peter just described it. I said, look, what is the Torah? What is the Mosaic period mostly like? It, well, it's about priests, it's about sacrifices, it's about law, okay? 
And then what happens in the next period of Israel's history? Well, you've got monarchs, you've got kings, it's royals, wisdom, all the wisdom literature is there. So, and that's different, okay? And then after that, prophets and so on. And presenting it simply, you know, putting that on a whiteboard and just writing those things down, they're like, okay, I, I can see the flow of that. Well, then you start explaining what actually priests do and what kings do and what prophets do. And, but you have to work through that. Uh, and I didn't get, I didn't get a lot of pushback on that. In fact, I got a lot of, you know, oh, wow. I don't think I ever really thought about it like that before. Um, but you, you really do have to, as Alistair just said, you have to, you have to mull over it. You have to ponder it. You have to <laughs> chew on it for a while. Uh, and you have to have it presented in a way that's going to be, uh, it, it's not, it's not just, you know, throwing it all out there at once. Uh, you can it has to build, you have to build it up. Maybe, uh, before we go any further, it'd be helpful just to, uh, clarify Jim's notion of a prophet, because this wasn't immediately, um, obvious to me, but it, it seems very important. So I'm on, uh, page 138 here. And Jim says the full meaning of prophet is council member, um, a member of God's divine council. Originally, that council consisted of three persons, the Father, Word and Spirit. Um, man was created in the image and likeness of God and was created to be a council member. And then um, Jim goes on to quote someone else who says this, the prophet claims to be far more than a messenger. He's a person who stands in the presence of God, uh, brackets Jeremiah 15, who stands in the council of the Lord, uh, Jeremiah 23. And, and those are actually kind of definitional um, to what Jeremiah says about a prophet. Um, who is a participant, as it were, in the council of God, um, not merely a bearer of dispatches. Um, and then the guy goes on, he is a counselor as well as a messenger. And and that all um, strikes me as, as very important. Um, we, we kind of find that uh, almost immediately when Abraham is described as a, as a prophet, that he, he begins to say to the Lord, well, hang on, what if we find some 50 righteous people in, in this city and, 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 so so it goes on and um i think that's a um a kind of added nuance to the common conception of a prophet that, that's very important and on that point just developing that it is very important to recognize that the prophet is not primarily someone who's foretelling the future he's bringing messengers messages from the divine council which can be speaking directly into the present concerning the present state of affairs as the Lord sees them, which is not the same thing as prophesying concerning the future. If you actually read through the prophets, a lot of the material is not actually concerning the future at all. And yet we speak about prophecy almost entirely in regular speech as something that concerns otherwise unknown future events. On the general approach that Jordan has here, I find these sorts of things illumine, the more that we bring these things together, the more that they illumine other themes. So I found, for instance, thinking about the relationship between man and woman in terms of the sort of patterns that Jordan's describing here and the significance of man as an agent of transformation, it gives us a new framework within which to think about this. So for instance, when we think about the relationship between man and woman, so often it's framed by 
a man who's just there in the garden um, twiddling his thumbs. But the man has been given a task. He's been created for a purpose, to transform the world. He's been created to respond to the problem at the beginning of um, the uh, account of chapter 2. After you've read through chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, you have this problem that there's no one to till the earth. There's no one to serve and to act upon the earth and to transform the earth. And so this man is created. But then it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, when we read that as modern people who aren't uh, attending to these themes of transformation, it's very easy to think about this just in terms of the man's psychological state. He's feeling lonely. He needs companionship. But another way to see it is that man has been created as the agent of transformation, and it's not good for him to be alone in that task of transformation without the woman. Indeed, he wouldn't be able to perform that role of transformation without the woman. And when you begin to think about it that way, I think it gives us a way of seeing the interaction between the man and the woman, not just as a face-to-face activity, but a shoulder-to-shoulder activity going out into the world, that they are fellow servants that have been created in order to perform this transformative task upon the creation. And then you can go back to chapter one and see the ways in which both man and woman relate in weighted ways to the various works that the Lord does within the creation of the world. So the task of forming and guarding, um, upholding and um, laying the foundations is one that will chiefly fall to the man. But the task of filling and glorifying and perfecting is one that will, and causing things to be fruitful and multiply, is one that will more particularly um, be exercised by the woman. It's not a complete divide or anything, but there is this this weighting of the task. And it helps us to, I think, understand man and woman, not primarily just as individuals created within this realm, but as persons with a vocation who have been created in ways that have fitted for this shared vocation that is a godlike vocation. They're doing what the Lord did in his original creation. They're transforming the world and completing that work of creation. And man's being alone is not good because he can't do that work of transformation without the woman whose activity is absolutely essential for that. And obviously, Alistair, that is can be a hugely um, fruitful idea in terms of understanding Christ and the church and the relationship there and the function of the church and so on. But that, I guess, is a yeah a bigger topic for later um, chapters. James, I want to return to uh, something you mentioned about the Jim's definition of prophecy. Yeah, I think it's, a re- it's really important to see that he's using this paradigm, priest, king, prophet, but in each case, he's uh, highlighting things that aren't traditionally highlighted under that under those headings. So you you mentioned the prophetic side of it that it's a council member rather than simply a somebody who foresees the future or somebody who simply de- simply delivers the word. The prophet is somebody who delivers the word because he's been in the council and he's heard the deliberations and the judgments of the council so he can he can carry those to the people. Jim does something similar with priest. Priest is defined often in terms of mediation or sacrifice, intercession, and those are all aspects of priestly ministry. Uh, and in later work, as Alistair said at the beginning, uh, after my dissertation work on priesthood, we all started talking about priests as uh, household servants, uh, servants of the 
of Yahweh's palace, which captures the full, the full range, I think, of priestly activities, and also captures the fact that priests are specifically attached to a sanctuary. But what Jim is doing in this book is defining priesthood, not in terms of intercession or sacrifice primarily, but in terms of guarding. And that's coming again. The, the, word is, the word shamar is there in Genesis 2. So it's not something he's importing completely from outside. But that word is used later, as I've said a couple of times. It's used later for the priests and the Levites who are guarding the sanctuary in the Mosaic order and preventing intruders, preventing unauthorized intruders from getting in. I'm pretty sure I didn't look at the footnotes when I was reading this again, but I'm pretty sure that Jim had already been exposed to some of the work of uh, the Jewish commentator Jacob Milgram, who places a great deal of emphasis on the encroacher and the uh, the priestly responsibility to to prevent encroachers and strangers, unauthorized people, from getting into the sanctuary. Uh, and so, and and uh, as as Jeff was pointing out, that's that's the background for the way that Jim understands what's going on in the temptation and fall. Uh, Adam's failure is a failure specifically of priestly work because he doesn't guard Eve. Jim has uh, pointed out for years that uh, Genesis 3.8 indicates that Adam was with Eve during the temptation. He's not across on the other side of the garden and comes rushing back hoping to intervene. He's there watching to see what would happen uh, or watching in fear, whatever whatever the motivations are. He, he's, he fails to perform that specific priestly task of guarding because the, the bride having been made and placed in the garden with Adam now becomes, uh, she, she herself is a kind of garden and Adam's priestly task involves guarding the bride, which is what, what, um, what he feels to do. And then, and then it modifies kingship in some fashion too, as Jeff, Jeff alluded to this earlier, earlier in the, this episode that um, if you think of kingship as service, then the king is there to serve the people and glorify the people like, um, uh, the king comes like sunlight on the mown grass after rain, Second uh, Second Samuel 23, uh, a part of the last words of David. He talks about kingship. The one who reigns in righteousness is like the sun shining on mown grass after rain. Uh, he's glorifying, giving life, even to the point of offering himself for the sake of the people. And so, as Jeff said, you can bring the cross and Jesus, the last Adam, uh, offering himself under the rubric of kingship. It's also a sacrificial self-offering, so there's a priestly dimension to what Jesus is doing. But uh, it's also it's a royal act. The cross, the cross is a kind of uh, enthronement for Jesus. Peter, this idea of um, Adam having to guard um, Eve, just as he has um, been charged to guard the garden initially, um, it's only a, a kind of minor point. But I wonder if this is just subtly hinted at in the kind of grammar of um chapter two when adam is given the task to um uh to tend or to serve the garden and to guard it um garden there is referred to in in the feminine which is um very unusual i mean it may well be the only time garden uh has a feminine um uh is, is used grammatically in a feminine way there um whenever i say this is the only way the bible does such and such a thing i'm almost invariably proven wrong um so perhaps there are other occasions but it is certainly a very unusual um way of referring to the garden and i wonder if there's more more to it than meets the eye there that it does sort of foreshadow the way in which adam is also charged to to guard eve and there we can also consider the way that the final glorification of this garden in the 
New Jerusalem is the bride. And so the relationship between the garden city and the woman is filled out, of course, within um, the later scripture. So just as the garden is filled out to um, the garden city, so the woman becomes that garden city. And she's filled out in that sense, too. Well, one of the other things that uh, comes up toward the end of this chapter is the, and we've hinted at this already, but the way that uh, the priest-king-prophet sequence applies not just to biblical history or sequence of covenants, but has um, echoes, ramifications for the way that uh, human life is organized, our individual lives Jim suggests at the end, kind of run through this. And he does this differently in different books. Again, he develops it much more elaborately in uh, the late, his later work uh, from Bread to Wine. But here he's simply pointing out that there's a, it, each of the human tasks, what man is given a task as a priest in the garden. He's given a task as king over the creation. He's given the task of a prophet as a council member of God, uh, finally elevated and maturing to that, to that status. But in each of those tasks, there's a process of maturation. So uh, before you become a prophet, you have to listen to the word. You have to absorb the word. And then you are, and you have to obey the word. (laughs) And then the Lord um, rewards that obedience and that faithfulness by inviting uh, inviting you into into his counsels. Or you have a similar sequence with uh, kingship. Kings don't start out. Ruling. If you have a child king, you know, and sometimes in the Bible, out of necessity, there's a child king. But typically, I mean, in, in the abstract, that's a curse. Uh, Isaiah refers to that, that children rule over you. Children don't start out being kings. They have to be trained. They have to be students. Uh, they have to learn, as um, so- Solomon is described in his kingly task, is learning about all of the all of the trees and the plants, the birds, all of the all of the different categories of creatures. Uh, so the student phase. There's a there's a warrior phase. Uh, before you become king, you have to you have to have some battle scars. You should prove yourself on the field, uh, and then you're elevated to king. Or to use a different kind of paradigm, you're in a position of service, uh, and you learn to submit, uh, and you learn to be under authority, uh, and then you gain the reward of being in authority. That's the movement of Joseph's life. It's the movement of David's life. So in in each of these in each of these uh, offices, as it were, there's this process of maturation going on that uh, it's not just a matter of, again, not just a matter of uh, the holy book, the Bible presents this paradigm, but it's actually something that's existentially real in our lives and has, um, you know, it's preachable. This paradigm is a preachable paradigm because you're talking about the the stages of life of human, stages of a human life uh, and the challenges that come at each of those stages of life. We can often fall into the trap of seeing the events after the fall of Jerusalem and after the return from exile as anticlimactic, that the glories of the kingdom have gone. But yet there are also these texts that are very clearly moving Israel towards this more prophetic ministry among the empires. And that should not be downplayed. There is something of a progression to a new level of glory here, even though externally it may not seem looking at the state of Israel as a polity, that it has actually progressed. This is one of those points that Alistair mentioned earlier that's generative. It's uh, extremely productive. And Jim will 
expand on this a great deal later in, in his later works. But it also just jumping in there, Peter, with what you said about human life, it, we should also note that it's the, it's this is the life of Jesus, the true man, the the last Adam, and he learns obedience through the things he suffered, and once made mature, becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That's uh, Hebrews 5 and in other places, so that uh, Jesus goes through this transformation in his life. When he's 30, he begins the warrior phase, and then the kingly his kingly service is proven on the cross when he gives his life for his bride, but then he's elevated. So uh, from a king to a prophet, he ascends and becomes a member of the heavenly council. I mean, we got to remember that it's the man, Christ Jesus, who ascends into heaven well, of course, the person of the Son united to our humanity ascends into heaven and is in closest possible relation, our humanity, to, to the Godhead. He's actually in the Trinity, uh, within the life, the blessed life of the Trinity. But um, that's a prophetic phase. That's his uh, his glorification. That He becomes an advisor to the Father, if you will, and, and an advocate for us. That, I mean, so that what happens in the points in this chapter and some of the very productive kind of observations that Jim, Jim makes about, you know, Genesis two and three is it gives us new eyes for understanding who Jesus was and what he's done for us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.